Hello, and welcome to the Tartan Tardigrade. This is a podcast brought to you by the UK Centre for Astrobiology at the University of Edinburgh. In the podcast, we talk to astrobiologists from around the world about their research, their careers, and anything else that comes to mind. In our first episode, we were joined by Susanna Porter from the University of California, Santa Barbara, while she was on a sabbatical in Edinburgh. She talked to Sean McMahon and Adam Stevens in November of 2018. So, hello, Susanna Porter. Please tell us who you are and what you work on. Oh, hi. It's great to be here. Uh, well, I am a professor at the University of California in Santa Barbara, and I'm on sabbatical here at the University of Edinburgh for the fall. And I'm a paleontologist, and I focus on the Precambrian and Cambrian, so the earliest eukaryote, single-celled, complex single cells, and animals, earliest animals. Do you think astrobiologists need to know about Precambrian paleontology? Yes, absolutely, because that it for one thing that's sort of the closest analog i assume to what if there is life on other planets it's uh more likely to the further back you go it's more likely to be similar um and the search for life on other planets is going to be not just extant life but evidence of past life so it's possible for example mars had life at one point and it's all extinct and the precambrian actually provides some of the the best analogs for what early life might look like how it how it might be preserved in the rocks do you, do you think there's analogs then in how you go looking for life evidence of life back in time on earth and also Looking for life on other planets as well. Yes, absolutely. And just to give you one example, um, actually some of the fossils that I work on maybe and how they're preserved is, is uh, my understanding of, of some of the Martian environments. You have, you know, maybe some uh, standing water or flowing water, but standing water and very fine-grained uh, deposits. And if there were, if there was something like a cell, like we we similar to life on Earth, would sink down into those fine-grained deposits, get buried, and assuming, again, perhaps it was made of organic matter, um, get preserved in those fine-grained rocks, and that's essentially the bulk of the fossil record of early eukaryotes is that same preservational condition, organic-walled microfossils in fine-grained siliciclastics. So if we get a rock like that from Mars back as one of the samples that's hopefully going to be returned by forthcoming sample return mission, Mm -hmm. and if that sample went to your lab, Mm. what would you do to it? Uh, Well, I guess I would process it the way I I process these Precambrian fossils. So two ways. Probably the, the, the best approach, the safest approach, would be to section it. So we cut polish off a surface, um, and then cut another, glue it to a slide, cut off the other side of it, basically get it so thin that you can see through it. You can just put light um, from a microscope transmitted through it and look at it under the microscope to see if there's evidence of any organics in there. Um, Probably a little less safe in terms of contamination, but another approach that we use is to take those rocks 
dump them in hydrofluoric acid, 50%, um, and let the siliciclastics dissolve and anything organic uh, that remains, then we could, the advantage there is that you could potentially see any morphology um, surface texture on, and actually look for, for body fossils, not just organic gunk. Most of the rocks that you are known for working on, uh, or the fossils that you're known for working on, are eukaryotes? Yes. Do you come across fossil bacteria in the same rocks? Yes, uh, at least structures that I think are most reasonably interpreted to be bacteria. They're quite small, you know, a few microns in size. Um, they can be a little bit bigger, but some of them have morphologies that are comparable to cyanobacterial microfossils. So. Do those just turn up at random, or do they tend to show up in particular types of rock or compositions? Um, I'd say you'd find them in the same assemblages that you find eukaryotes. That if you're looking for bacterial body fossils, so their original form, um, yeah, you would look in these fine grain rocks, these shales, um, or another common sort of preservational window that we look in are uh, carbonates that have been silicified very early, and so the organic bodies that are in there get entombed in three dimensions. I don't, my understanding is that's a probably less common um, environment <laughs> environment on Mars. Um, but yeah, we see, we often see bacterial filaments and coccoids in these cherts, but they can show up as well in the siliciclastics. So you've just given us a wonderful talk on um, eukaryovory. Is that pronouncing yes. that right? Yes, <laughs> eukaryvory. Um, could Not you tell us a little bit about the, the vampires that you were just talking about? Yeah, so that was a project that actually sort of came about as an accident. I was doing uh, just a systematic sort of fossil description of some beautifully preserved fossils from the Chuar group, which is the oldest group of fossiliferous rocks in the Grand Canyon, dated between 780 million years ago and 730 million years ago. So those these fossils have been studied using light microscopy, um, but that is a limit to its level of resolution. So I started looking at it under the scanning electron microscope, and I found these in, in a number of specimens, not that common, I have found uh, these perfectly circular about one micron or so sized holes in some of the specimens and it was always that size um, and I found them in a variety of different species and uh, the most reasonable explanation for them is that uh, they are the holes of, of probably protists, maybe, maybe other protists, that pierced the outer resistant organic wall of these organisms um, and then sucked out basically the the stuff that is inside. And they're very similar. The reason I say this is very similar to a group of modern, uh, to holes that are made by a group of modern uh, protists that are called vampirellid amoebae. They're named for vampires uh, that make holes, very similar holes in fungal spores and fungal hyphae in soils. And they're also known uh, from marine and freshwater environments where they prey on algae. So, um, I mean, one of the exciting things about this, this work is that it's the oldest uh, evidence for predation in the fossil record so far. I mean, there's uh, potential older perforations to be found. Um, but it also suggests a way of measuring, getting a sense of predation intensity and how far back it goes. 
um, because you know the other primary way that protists eat protists is by phagocytosis, and that's hard to get a sense of. That doesn't preserve in the fossil record, whereas these piercing holes do. I think maybe we should just define a few terms for our listeners. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, Sorry. firstly, what is a eukaryote? So a eukaryote is uh, one of the three domain, sort of three major domains of life: um, the archaea, the bacteria, and the eukaryotes. And archaea and bacteria are what we call prokaryotes. They uh, are people refer to them as having relatively simple cells. They're simple in the sense that they don't have organelles. They don't have mitochondria uh, or plastids. Um, for the most part, they don't have a cytoskeleton, although there's some archaea that maybe do. Um, they don't have a nucleus. That's the sort of primary distinction. And so eukaryotes are the group that includes animals, plants, and fungi, and seaweeds, but it also includes a variety of single-celled organisms like foraminifera and radiolaria and coccolithophorids, um, slime molds, amoebae. Uh, so that was one of the things that kind of struck me about your talk is we often... And, and kind of my training as well, you, you see this quite large divergence in talking about the simple stuff, yes. like archaea and bacteria, yeah. and the complex stuff, which we see generally as animals yes. and trees, but obviously includes things like fungi as well. Right. Um, but you told us quite a lot about these amazing, simple eukaryotes um, right. um, that actually look more perhaps like bacteria than they do like animals. Yeah, well, and in fact, they're actually not so simple. They're in some ways more like animals and and um, plants than bacteria. Although they are single-celled, they they exhibit an incredible diversity of shapes and incredible range of behaviors. Um, and they can even form complex unicell, you know, subcellular structures uh, that are analogous to structures that multicellular groups will make, you know, with their multi-cells. So these are the protists you're talking about? These are the protists, yeah. Simple, single-celled eukaryotes. Yeah, and you know, there's... Right, and and there's this interesting sort of, I think, shift that needs to be made in in our consciousness of thinking about them. Um, There is a great paper by O'Malley et al. 2013, and she taught that those authors talked about, they make the point about how we tend to think of protists as tiny animals and plants, right? And that's typically how, you know, it used to be we divided all life into animals and plants. And and I still sometimes hear people talk about protozoa as being little animals, right? That's that's the wrong way to think about it because it's sort of group, it's, it's, um, it's uh, just sticking them all, it, it, it leads to the assumption that they have animal-like characters. Like anything that's true of an animal, we can just ascribe to these protists or plants to some protists. And in fact, it's better to think about, this paper made this point, it's better to think about animals and plants and fungi as just being highly specialized protists. And in fact, there's a much greater, greater diversity. And these are just a couple of different examples, right? So there's this sort of lack of appreciation for the incredible diversity of this group of eukaryotes, really. Eukaryotes really are about the, the protists, I'd say. And we just have a couple of unusually successful groups that happens to include us. And by some definitions, we're not that successful. No, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Define your terms. 
Uh, so maybe you can tell us something about your personal trajectory. How did you get to the point where you were yeah, working on this material? So you said that you finding these uh, predators was an accident. Yeah. But you also told us that you started off in a different field. Yes, actually, I have a very circuitous route to um, to where I am today, and I think one of my uh, you call it like one of my faults is that I'm interested in too many different things, and I have a hard time focusing. <laughs> I even have that problem like at restaurants. I want to try everything on the, on the menu. So, um, I mean, growing up, I was always uh, digging in the dirt and loved worms. And at one point, I, I thought it'd be really cool to be a doctor, not because I wanted to treat sick people, but because I wanted to do aut- autopsies and be a pathologist. So when you put that all together, you know, death and dirt and squishy little animals, it kind of makes sense that I am where I am today. But um, in college, I, I got so captivated by math. I loved doing math. I didn't want to stop doing math in order to major in biology, which had this huge course load. So I decided to be a math major and take biology on the side. And um, then I went directly to graduate school, PhD in evolutionary and organismic biology, and started out in a lab studying sexual selection in modern crickets. Um, but I just felt like, although I was really interested in evolution, the questions were too narrow, not big picture enough for me. And I was always very drawn to the writings of Stephen Jay Gould. And, um, and I, I was raised in a, in a, I was a daughter of a geologist, a quaternary climate glacial geologist. Um, so I always appreciated that sort of that sense of deep time. And so I switched my second year into a paleontology um, lab and was initially interested in the Cambrian explosion. And, and I, in fact, still do work on the earliest animals and biomineralization. But Andy also introduced me to the world of Precambrian paleontology and protists. And so I got more and more interested in that. And that's where I am today. And... May, looking back, would you have a, a top tip for young researchers who maybe want to do similar kind of things to what, what you do, rafting down the Colorado River and picking up <laughs> fossils? Or? Oh, I don't know if you can gain any advice from my kind of crazy circuitous route. Um, I think that, what would my advice be? Okay, so advice that I would give myself at age 22, 25 that time frame. I remember, um, I think, I think I remember going through a stage where my confidence was, was extremely low. I don't know if everybody goes through this. I suspect in grad school and as a postdoc, um, it's probably fairly common. (laughs) And I guess my advice would be to just sort of stick with it and, and try not to let that get you down and to realize that there was also kind of, I remember a moment in grad school where I just got into my advisor's office and he was saying, yeah, well, and blah, blah, blah. And this is how it is. And I realized, oh my goodness, he's wrong. I know he's wrong. And I think for the first three or four years of my PhD, I just, everything he said, even if it was just an assertion, you know, I just take as the truth. And I find um, as I go along in my career, that I'm probably better. I'm I've been better served when 
you know, even someone as intimidating as your advisor or the, the star in the field says it's so, um, really question that, you know? And that's one thing I like about, I like about science is the sort of meritocracy of it, right? That it's not about how important you are or whatever, that, that it really is just, what's the evidence? What's the evidence? So the more I can stick to sort of thinking that way, if I know the subject well, if I have my arguments, then I should have the confidence. Do you think there is or ever was life on Mars? Yes, I do. Excellent. <laughs> and I should say, speaking of life elsewhere in the universe, I've always thought one of, one of so many things that I have wanted to happen in my life have, have happened, and I feel so lucky um, to have done all the things I have. And there's really just one more thing that I want to see, or you know, other than like watch my children grow up. And that is, I would love to be alive when life is found elsewhere in the universe. And when that news comes, I am going to go out to the fanciest restaurant in town and have a big, expensive, delicious meal to celebrate. That was great. Thank you. Good. Yeah, Good. Thank you for listening to The Tartan Tardigrade. If you'd like to find out more about the UK Centre for Astrobiology or astrobiology in general, you can visit our website at astrobiology.ac.uk. You'll also find links there to the other episodes of the podcast and a link where you can subscribe via the University of Edinburgh podcast service. Next time, we hear from Magnus Ivoshin, a paleontologist from the Natural History Museum of Stockholm.